0: Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak.
1: You know, a few months back, there was a headline that caught my attention. Uh, Apparently, young people, listen up, young people, apparently, you no longer need to be concerned with death. You don't. Yeah, science, science is going to cure death in the next 50 years. It's all over the newspapers, all in the uh, articles. Seriously, there's this incredible effort that is underway to find that magical genetic switch that is going to turn off the aging process. And the scientists are just expecting that from now on, we will begin to talk about lifespan in the category of centuries Rather than in the decades that we now currently discuss it, uh, Google got involved. Google funded a company. You know, Tim, Tim, are you here? Uh, Tim Bezelli is. This is his last Sunday, I think, right? Or something like that, Pretty soon, he's going to work for Google out in the West Coast, and so you know, you're now a part of this big guy. You know, all of our hopes and dreams rest on you. Okay? Uh, no, uh, Google. Google funded a company called Calico the California life company that is dedicated to this issue. Uh, You know, the media got news, uh, got wind of this about five years ago, and uh, they put it on their their front page. Can Google solve death? This became known as Google versus death. So what's going on here? And listen, there is serious backing from tech giants. Uh, People like Larry Ellis, the the co-founder of Oracle, and Larry Page, and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of of Google, and other tech industry giants and hedge fund managers, they are putting billions of dollars into this effort. Uh, They are partnering with scientists and geneticists and ancestry.com and all the genetic databases and things like that, and they're pursuing this effort. You know, I was curious to see um, if, if Bill Gates was involved in all of this. And uh, actually, Bill Gates was asked and interviewed, and he said something that was interesting. He said, no, I'm not giving money towards this. He said, I, in some level, this just, just feels arrogant and egocentric that, you know, billionaires are putting all of these dollars towards this when every year, millions of people still die from malaria and TB and other diseases. And then he paused and after a little bit though, he, he did say, but it would be nice to live longer though. <laughs> um, now young people don't get too excited too quick. I was all over this. I thought I've been following this in the news for some time, but last month you got some bad news unfortunately. Peter Shanks, in an article for the Center for Genetics and Society, he he wrote this. He asked the question, can Google solve death? We have an answer. No. They let us down, all right? At at least the way they thought they could. And he goes on to explain how they're actually discovering that genetics has very little impact on our lifespan The lifespan has little to do with genes, analysis of large ancestry databases show. So genes aren't everything? Now he's asking this sarcastically as he's writing to this this group that, that studies genes for a living. So genes aren't everything? Who'd have thought? The lead authors of this study work for Calico, and the company deserves credit for not burying the research. You know, on the one hand, I do appreciate efforts like this that are put forward to improve the vitality of the human condition. Our lives are all better today because men and women through the centuries have pursued efforts to make life better. However, I have to say I am very much a, a realist, and efforts like these and others designed to you know, end hunger, Save the whales, stop global warming, uh, protect the snail darter, the spotted owl, the abandoned dogs and cats that live all around the world on these late night commercials. Uh, Efforts, you know, to um, establish a universal wage, to end crime, to end poverty, to end illiteracy, to end, to end, just, you know what I'm talking about here. All of these things that, that consume us. I'm a realist. All of these efforts, folks so often they are fatally flawed. And at best, they are partially successful. Why? Why? With all this great intellect put behind these issues, why are the results so often disappointing? And I would contend that the reason why is because those who are involved in this are dealing with the symptoms rather than the core issue of what's going on in our world. So what is the core issue. Church, if, if what we were facing in this world, if all of these different items that I just mentioned to you, if this was just simply a matter of science, if it was material and physical, humanity would have solved most of these problems a long, long time ago. The issue here, the problems we're facing in our world that that rightly so, they grieve us, they concern us. These problems are not primarily physical and material. They are spiritual. And so all of these individuals, all the scientists and the tech titans and who reject God and whose universe is this little closed system that is material and physical in nature and that's all there is, I have news for these men who are very much smarter than I am, you're going to fail. At best, you're gonna have limited success. Because you're dealing with the wrong core issue. You're dealing with the symptoms. And not what's really going on here. And what's going on here is reflected in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Humanity has an implacable, immoral enemy who greatly desires to destroy the image of God from this planet. He hates us, he is powerful, and he has numerous evil forces behind him. So much so that this passage says that we're at war with him. With him, the devil, and his entire army. What does he say in opening verses here in Ephesians 6? He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And church, that's why the only hope that this world has is not in Google or uh, Oracle or genetic companies. The only hope that this world has is in Jesus Christ and in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the church of Jesus Christ, spreading that good news to all the corners of the earth. That's the hope for this world. For this fight that we are in, God gives us some commands in this passage. The very first of which is we're to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. Now I wish that we had time this morning, we don't, maybe in the future we can devote a series of messages to going through the different aspects and the elements of this armor. But for this morning, suffice it to say that Paul is saying here in this passage in very illustrative, uh, descriptive language, things that he has said in other places, maybe in a more direct and simple manner. So here he tells us to put on the armor of God. But in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A couple of pages earlier in the book of Ephesians, in chapter four, he says, put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In 2 Corinthians, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, stronghold, to destroy strongholds. The Apostle James, he puts it in the language of a king and servants, and he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, church, from, for our defense, so that we can stand We are to what? We are to put on Christ. We are to put on the new creation. We are to submit to God. We are to let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. We are to take captive every thought, not to be conformed to the world, but all of these are different ways of saying, put on the armor of God. All of these phrases are getting at the same core, central truth, that if we are to stand... We have to appropriate what it means to be united with Jesus Christ, to have been declared righteous by God for all of eternity. We have to appropriate what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, with God himself, and to have the truth within us. Putting on the armor of God is beginning to understand who we are in Christ and to live in harmony with that identity. This is what it is, and for our offense against this evil one, we're given two weapons. One of them is associated with the armor. It's in verse 17, it's the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And we're gonna come back to this weapon in just a moment. But the, but the other weapon, the second weapon in this great war is in verse 18 and it corresponds with God's second command. The first command, put on the armor of God and now in verse 18, and pray. We're to put on the armor of God and we are to pray. And this is the final church value that I'm bringing to you this morning in this series that we've been in about our church values. You know, we have seen living authentically and connecting intentionally, uh, proclaiming graciously the gospel, multiplying concentrically in evangelism and missions and leadership development. Last week, we dug into caring genuinely. And this morning, we're gonna look at our last value, but now listen, just because it's the last value, I want you to understand it is not last on our list of values. In fact, when the, the, the vision team that did all this work put together the values of our church, this value is actually second in the list right after living authentically. And that value is this, praying dependently. Read with me the description of praying dependently. In a world of self-reliance, we find power when we look to God rather than to ourselves. In a world of self-reliance, we find power when we look to God rather than to ourselves. Verses 18 and 19, they're critical in understanding what it means. We're in this spiritual war and what it means to pray dependently, and these verses are all about this value. So let's dig in. We're gonna see several things this morning. We're gonna look, first of all, at the centrality of dependent prayer, and then we're gonna look at the characteristics of de- dependent prayer, and finally, the effectiveness of dependent prayer. The centrality of dependent prayer, it is foundational. Dependent prayer is actually foundational for the effective usage of the armor that God gives us. Let me explain what I mean. In verse uh, 14, for example, we are told to put on the belt of truth. In other words, that the truth of God's word is to saturate our minds. Well folks, in order for that to happen, we have to pray. We have to pray and ask God to illuminate our minds to open our eyes so that we can understand the truth, to help us so that our thinking becomes the thinking of Christ, that our minds are saturated with the word of truth so that the mind of Christ can be our mind, so that our thought processes and worldview are biblical. We have to pray and ask God to open this up to us, to illuminate it to us, so prayer is an integral part of putting on the belt of truth. Or when we talk about our feet being shod in verse 15, we pray so that when opportunities arise for us to share with others the reason for the hope that we have, we pray so that we are ready that we see those opportunities for what they are and we seize them. Maybe one of the clearest examples of how prayer integrates with the armor because it's something that we all have experienced. We're told in verse 16, that we have given the shield of faith to protect us against the temptations that Satan throws our way towards sin. And how do we defeat those temptations? It's through the shield of faith. But how often are we told to pray and ask for God to strengthen our faith, to embolden our faith, to build our faith up. So prayer is integral if we are gonna actually have a strong shield of faith to use. As one uh, pastor from past decades said, um, essentially prayer is the glue that holds the armor of God together. Uh, Pete O'Brien in his writings on this subject of Ephesians chapter six says, the apostle wants the Ephesians to realize that a life of dependence on God in prayer is essential if they are to engage successfully in their warfare with the power of darkness. While it's indispensable to the defensive aspect of this armor, at the same time, prayer is our most essential offensive weapon. Spiritual prayer that engages in the fight that is dependent upon God, it has certain characteristics. Verses 18 and 19, we're going to walk through these together, and you're going to see there's several important characteristics of dependent prayer. He starts out in verse 18 by saying, praying at what, church? All times. Praying at all times. The very first characteristic of dependent prayer is that it is continual. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he'll say, pray without ceasing. Now, listen, listen. Paul is not saying that we are to pray every second of every hour of every day of every week of the year. This is physically impossible to do. What he is saying is that people of God, we are to be prepared at all times to pray over anything and everything that we experience and interact with. There is nothing too small, there's nothing too large, There's nothing too insignificant or significant for us to skip bringing to God in prayer. And so the the encouragement is to bring it all because there is nothing off limits that is happening in your life that if you have a burden or a concern or you see an opportunity, whatever it may be, bring it to God in prayer. We are to pray at all times in the spirit. So dependent prayer is not only continual, it is powerful. How often have we all probably experienced that sensation of knowing that we need to pray and feeling like our words fumble and stumble over themselves that, that we we're praying and effectively? The praying in the Spirit solves this. Romans chapter eight tells us, "'Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, "'for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, "'but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's not only continual and powerful, dependent prayer is comprehensive. You know, some, some scholars will look at this phrase with all prayer and supplication, and they say these are synonyms. I don't think that's the case here. Uh, and then other scholars would disagree and say that they are different, and I think they are different. And let me put it to you like this. All supplications, all requests that we make of God are prayer, but not all prayers are supplication. Does that make sense? All supplications are prayer, but not all prayer is supplication. So when he says pray with all prayer and supplication, this means that we bring to God the adoration that he's due. We bring the praise and the glory that he's due. We confess our sins to him, we are thankful to him for all the ways that he has blessed us. We intercede on the behalf of other people and we bring our requests to him. So dependent prayer is comprehensive with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Dependent prayer is also persistent prayer. You know, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives this great uh, illustration of prayer. And he says, imagine that you you, you have company that comes over late at night, and you want to make some hoagies. Jesus said that, hoagies. No, not really. You want to make some hoagies, right? And uh, and by the way, I'd never really used the word hoagie until I started going to the Dwawa down here on Malabar, and I learned, okay, hoagie—that's actually a word, okay. Uh, so, all right. So you want to make a hoagie for your family at night, and you realize you don't have any bread. Right? But you know that your, your brother next door, he's got three loaves of bread. And it may be midnight, but you need to feed your company. And so what do you do? You go to that, your brother's house, and you begin to knock on your door. And your brother being the, 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 you know, the kind of the thing that he is, he sticks his head out and says, what? I'm reading between the lines here of Jesus' story, right, because I have a brother. What, what do you want? Hey, I need bread. I've got company and I'm out of bread, and I know you got some bread, can I have your bread and I'll pay you back tomorrow, right? And, and what does your brother do? Because he's such a loving guy, he shouts down at you, no, I'm in bed, the doors are locked, everything's closed up, just go home. Because that is what brothers do, aren't they, right? And, and so Jesus says, what are you gonna do in that situation? I tell you what you're gonna do, you're gonna start knocking on the door. And here's what happens. If you knock long enough and loud enough, sooner or later, your brother, he's going to get irritated. And and you know what he's going to do? He's going to get out of bed. He's going to grab the bread. He's going to say, here, take the bread. Right? Because you're persistent in that prayer. And his point is this. He says, "If, if your human friends and family will respond like that, how much more do you think your loving father who wants to give you the good things that you need in life, that he will respond to persistent prayer. Now, have, you ever, have you ever prayed and not seen results? It, it feels like your prayer doesn't get answered. I think maybe sometimes in the, the most common areas is when we begin to pray for loved ones and friends who do not know Christ and we pray for them that they would come to know Christ and it, it, and it can get really discouraging. Sometimes you can pray for months and years and year after year, and after a while, I mean, I, I admit, it, this has happened to me, I, I hardly ever pray for him anymore. Every now and then, maybe out of a sense of obligation, and even then, the prayer can be cynical or half-hearted because you just think, you know, this person's never going to change. This is never going to happen. I mean, how long have I been praying? Years, right? Well, this 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 portion of scripture is saying, listen, don't get discouraged. Don't give in to the temptation to move on. Keep alert. Be encouraged. This, this has second coming of Christ overtones, eschatological overtones, Right? Keep alert and keep on, press on in your prayer because it is not hopeless. They're full of hope and all kinds of reasons to hope, and that hope is grounded ultimately in the very sure fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is gonna return one day. You see, dependent prayer, it's continual, it's powerful, it's comprehensive, and it's persistent. Fifthly, making supplication for all saints. It's kingdom focused. It's kingdom focused. Now again, just like you can't pray all the time, every minute of every hour of every day, that's not what he's getting at. Here he's not saying that we have the duty and the obligation to pray for every single Christian that we know. That again would just, I mean that's all we would do. We'd spend all day praying, we wouldn't have time to eat. That's not what he's getting at here. He's telling us it's important for us to pray for all categories of Christianity and Christians and what God is doing around the world. So we are to pray on a regular basis for the the persecuted church. We are to pray for ministries that are on the front lines of this warfare. We are to pray for partners like Leo, who we saw just a moment ago in Brazil and India, Central America, South America, Europe, Japan, the Philippines, these partners who we know are planting churches, we're to pray for them and pray for others like them, who are doing the work of the ministry and are on the front lines of this type of warfare, fighting against the forces of evil and nations that have yet to come to know Jesus Christ. Make supplications for all the saints. It's kingdom focused in verse 19, and also for me, sixth characteristic, it's personal. Yes, we pray big for people around the world, but it's also personal, we pray for one another, it's Christians praying for other Christians and for people who need intercession made. Church, church, I hope and I pray that 2019 characterizes us like never before where we earnestly, sincerely, consistently, faithfully are praying for one another. In in 2019, most of you are in small groups. Church, let's make our small groups. More than anything else, yes, it's important that we talk about football or whatever, and it's obviously very important that we have some desserts, okay? And those types of things, and we catch up. (laughs) But let's make sure that the majority of our time, that the biggest chunk of our time that is dedicated to one thing is dedicated to prayer and not just generic prayer, but where we as a church authentically are doing life together, the very first value. This is why this value comes before prayer. So that when we gather together in our groups, we are authentic with one another, we are honest with one another, we share our burdens, we share our struggles, we confess our sins to one another where we're finding it hard to follow Christ, where we put before each other these strongholds in our lives these opportunities that we have that we're afraid to, to take advantage of, whether it's spiritual life or our regular life, let's bring these things to one another and pray. And pray. And may those prayers not stop at 8.15 when we go to pick our kids up from child care, but throughout the week, we remember because if we love one another, we will pray for one another throughout the week. We'll, we'll, we'll follow up, hey, I'm praying about your brother. I'm praying for this. How's it going? This is what we need. for, And also for me, dependent prayer is personal intercession for one another. And listen, if you look in the book of Acts and you see some of these phenomenal examples of God responding to the prayers of his people, you notice that the people of God, thousands of converts in the church at Jerusalem, they're not gathering together at the temple courts, praying as this huge group. They're in homes and smaller subsets of the church praying earnestly together and God moves mightily through those groups and their prayer. And he'll do the same thing for our church. The characteristics of dependent prayer. They're continual. They're powerful. They're comprehensive. They're persistent and kingdom focused. They're personal. Finally, missional. Paul says, pray for me, verse 19, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Remember I said we have two offensive weapons. One is prayer. The other offensive weapon associated with our armor is what? The sword of the spirit which is the word of of God. Now what's interesting here, I think it's significant, is that Paul does not nor- choose the, the normal w- Greek word for our word, which is logos. It's a different word, it's rhema. And that's significant because rhema is most often associated with speaking the truth of the gospel to other people. It's the spoken word. And it fits within the context because what is Paul asking us to do, or the Ephesians to do? He's saying, pray for me, because here's the deal. I am given these opportunities to speak the gospel, the good news to people, and I get nervous. I get afraid. I need you to pray for me so that I will be bold, so that I'll know exactly what to say in this situation, so that Jesus is brought to the life of the individual. Isn't it interesting? I mean, we think of the Apostle Paul, and obviously he was a great man of God, used by God to just do incredible things, yet the Apostle Paul, this man who raised people from the dead, who did incredible miracles, said, I need you to pray for me so that I will not wimp out and be afraid when it comes time to proclaim the gospel. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be the biggest wimp. (laughs) I can get nervous, I can stand before you this morning, I can honestly say I'm standing before you this morning, I'm preaching, I don't have one flutter of nervousness. Right? But buddy, you put me across the table from a skeptic and and my stomach will turn in knots. I, I think most of us have experienced this, and so, Paul is saying dependent prayer. It's missional. It is bathing these people who that we know that we love who don't know Christ. It's bathing them in prayer. It's asking God to give us the opportunity to give us the words to help us to be filled with grace and power so that these opportunities bear fruit. This is dependent prayer. There's no doubt, folks, we're in a war. Our enemy, he is great He has numerous followers, the devil and the demonic forces, but listen, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And in God's divine providence, as he wins this war, he's decreed, he's commanded that we pray, that we pray dependently. Does it do any good? Does it really do any, I mean, if God is sovereign, does it really, do we really need to pray? Well, let's end with that, the effectiveness of prayer. Now, Dr. James Boyce, the pastor of 10th Pres for decades, just a wonderful man of God, dealt with this question of, does it really do any good to pray? Why pray when God is sovereign? And one of the ways he answered that was to point people back to the Old Testament. It's a great story. In 2 Kings chapter six, you find the prophet Elisha, who's taking the place of Elijah, the wonderful prophet of God, and the the Syrians, and the Syrian army and kingdom is attacking the northern kingdom of Israel. And their king, Ben-Hadad, and his armies and his generals, they're fighting, but mysteriously, every time they try to do something, it seems like the Israelites are in the perfect position to stymie the attacks. And so he's convinced that maybe we have a spy in the camp, but they didn't have a spy in the camp, what they had was God, who knew all the thoughts and what was gonna take place, and he was telling Elisha what the generals were gonna do, and Elisha was then sending a communications to the king of Israel, who was then moving his forces the way. and they were checkmating the Syrians. And so when the king is complaining about this, one of his men say, listen, it's not that we have a spy, it's that they have God on their side. And he's telling Elisha, and so Hadad sends a large portion of his army and his generals to surround the town that Elisha's in. and He wants to kill him. So let's destroy this guy. Let's get rid of him, and this problem goes away. And and here's Elisha. He's asleep in his bed in the town of Dothan, Alabama. No, not really. The Dothan. He's been to the outlet malls anyway. Um, he's in Dothan. And one morning, the next morning, his servant boy gets up, and he goes outside the gates with his pail to get water, and he looks up, and he sees they are absolutely surrounded by the army. And so what does he do? He freaks out. He drops his pail. He runs back inside. He gets Elisha. He says, Elisha, our goose is cooked. We're surrounded by the armies. And Elisha gets out, and he puts his robe on, and he comes out, and he, he says, look. And this is what he says to this young man. He's standing outside the gates, and he says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, and he said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha and they're delivered from this king. Church, understand, let's read it together. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. This is why we pray dependently. Is it effective? Absolutely, as powerful as Satan is, as numerous as his followers are, he's he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, He's not eternal. He's a created being under the control of God himself. He will not do one thing that God does not permit. And when God is done with this plan for the universe, Satan and all of his forces will meet therein. Greater is he, more numerous are they that are with us than are with them. In this world of self-reliance, we find power when we look to God rather than to ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to turn our hearts and minds towards this subject. Lord, maybe even more than evangelism, this area, I believe, is where the enemy attacks us at the personal level and at the corporate level. Lord, make us a praying church, I ask a church that prays dependently and reliance upon you boldly so that we can engage in the fight, so that your name would be honored. Lord Jesus, and our community groups, and our small groups and discipleship groups, make us a praying people. And Lord, we'd ask that you display your power through us in such marvelous ways that it'll be impossible for us to ignore So that when we come together, all of us will say, how great is the God to whom we pray and worship. For your glory I ask these things,
0: Lord Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.